Welcome, Bankless Nation, to State of the Nation, where we dive down into a topic that is currently floating around the world of crypto. This week on State of the Nation, we are talking with Dan Robinson, head of research GP at Paradigm. And recently across my Twitter feed, I saw a tweet thread from Dan Robinson about how there are five big ways that Uniswap X changes the game for swapping in DeFi, swapping in crypto. And I learned a ton in this tweet thread and I thought it would be super useful if Dan Robinson came onto the show and explained each point himself here. And so that is what you are about to get here today because Uniswap X doesn't just stop at Uniswap X. It also brings with it a bunch of new changes for the DEX landscape that impacts so many other things across DeFi, across Ethereum. It impacts bridges, it impacts rollups, it impacts MEV, it impacts market makers. And so there's about to be, perhaps, if you believe in this new intent-based paradigm, which is something that we will define in the show, it flips a lot of what it means to be a DEX or to be a DEX swapper on its head. So you're going to learn about all of these details in this coming new meta for DeFi, as well as what it means for you, the user, you, the swapper, and also perhaps you, the LP, if you are an LP in this world of DeFi as well. And then we also open up some other doors is what does the future of LPing yields in Uniswap look like? What can Uniswap V4 do for LPs? Well, Uniswap X is focusing on swappers and why swappers and LPs are the two parts of a DEX that need to be held in the highest regard and why everything else is secondary. And then also we open the door to what Flashbots is working on with Suave, which is at the very end of this episode. Overall, you're gonna learn a ton about the DEX landscape that is changing quickly, both with Uniswap v4 and with Uniswap X, as well as some other things in the intent-based world, which is a hot topic in the DEX and dev landscape. Quickly, before we get into our interview with Dan, Uniswap is a main focus of this episode and Uniswap is also a sponsor of of Bankless. Bankless also holds a supply of uni tokens, which you can see at bankless.eth and also bankless.com slash disclosures. So let's go ahead and get right into our episode with Dan Robinson from Paradigm. But first, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible, especially Kraken, our preferred exchange for crypto in 2023. Before you get to Uniswap on-chain, you first have to bridge your money from off-chain from the trad world. Consider using Kraken our preferred exchange for crypto in 2023. If you do not have an account with Kraken, consider clicking the link in the show notes to get started with Kraken today. Kraken Pro has easily become the best crypto trading platform in the industry. The place I use to check the charts and the crypto prices, even when I'm not looking to place a trade. On Kraken Pro, you'll have access to advanced charting tools, real-time market data, and lightning-fast trade execution, all inside their spiffy new modular interface. Kraken's new customizable modular layout lets you tailor your trading experience to suit your needs. Pick and choose your favorite modules and place them anywhere you want in your screen. With Kraken Pro, you have that power. Whether you are a seasoned pro or just starting out, join thousands of traders who trust Kraken Pro for their crypto trading needs. Visit pro.kraken.com to get started today. Introducing Polygon 2.0, the value layer for the internet. For too long, the limitations of blockchains have held back app development and stifled user adoption. The internet allows anyone to create and exchange information. What's missing is a value layer that lets anyone exchange, store, and program value. That's where Polygon 2.0 comes in. Polygon Labs has unveiled a series of innovations that will radically alter the Polygon ecosystem and Web3 as a whole. By leveraging groundbreaking ZK innovations, such as Polygon ZK EVM, the next iteration of the best 
best-in-class Plonky 2 proving system and a first-of-its-kind ZK-powered interoperability layer, Polygon 2.0 will give users and devs unlimited scalability and unified liquidity. Right now, there is a Polygon improvement proposal regarding a potential ZK-powered upgrade of Polygon Proof-of-Stake. If approved, Polygon Proof-of-Stake would become a Layer 2 ZKEVM Validium. So make your voice heard on this proposal by joining the Polygon Discord today. You have a chance to help the Polygon community give the internet the value layer it deserves. Are you planning to launch a token? Is your token already live? And are you granting your employees and contractors vesting token awards? And are you trying to figure out how to take care of taxable events for your team? Toku makes implementing a global token incentive award simple. With Toku, you will get unmatched legal and tax support to grant and administer your global team's tokens. Toku will help you navigate across the life cycle of your token from easy to use pre-launch token grant award templates to managing post-cliff taxable events with payroll. For legal, finance, and HR teams, it's a huge complex task to have to comply with labor laws, payroll and tax obligations, tax reporting, and crypto regulations in every country that you employ someone. It's difficult, time-consuming, manual, and costly, and it's drawing more attention from global regulators and governments. Toku makes it simple for leading companies in the space, Protocol Labs, Hedera, Gitcoin, and many more. So if you want some help navigating the complex world of token compliance, go to toku.com bankless or click the link in the description below. Bankless Nation, I would love to introduce you to Dan Robinson. He is GP and head of research at Paradigm. He, over the years, has done a lot of deep thinking about markets, auctions, and liquidity in DeFi with a particular focus, I'd say, on Uniswap, Uniswap, and Uniswap V3. Recently, Uniswap Labs released Uniswap X, a new Dutch auction mechanism that Dan thinks changes the meta for swapping assets in DeFi and also MEV, chain interoperability, and many more things. The last time we had Dan on Bankless was September of 2020, almost three years ago. If you've ever heard Ryan or I say the phrase, Ethereum is a dark forest, it came from that episode. Dan, welcome back to Bankless. Thanks for having me. Dan, you recently wrote a thread which uh, triggered my imagination and was the impetus for bringing you onto this podcast that was titled, Five Reasons I Think Uniswap X Changes the Game for Decentralized Exchange, MEV, and Interoperability. And this already kind of gave me um, a, a model, an agenda for this episode, which we want to get into. But just I really want to start at the highest of levels. Can you maybe define the landscape for why something like Uniswap X is needed in the DeFi sphere? Uh, what, are, what are the current variables or the current things that are producing this need for Uniswap X? Yeah, so I can talk about that. And, and I think it'll also talk a little about Uniswap v4 and why I, sure. where I see that fitting in. So from my perspective, decentralized exchange research, which is where I've spent a lot of, of um my career and my, my research focus has been um, uh, at Paradigm and with Uniswap. Decentralized exchange research, in my view, has to be about reducing the amount of value that leaks out of the system, um, the decentralized exchange system. And so with uh, uh, when you're in a decentralized exchange, uh, particularly with automated market makers, you have on one side liquidity providers and on the other side swappers. And swappers are coming in because they can get the most liquidity from or the best prices from your decentralized exchange. And liquidity providers are hoping to earn the best uh, uh, returns from um, from fees, uh, trading fees being paid. And a lot of what I would say uh, in research in decentralized exchange design um, that I've seen happen elsewhere has been focused on trying to tip the balance one way or the other between take take money out of the swappers' pockets and put it in LP's pockets or, or vice versa. Um, and I think when you when you see a lot of reactions to some to decentralized exchange research is often saying, oh, you know, this hurts LPs uh, to benefit swappers, or this hurts swappers to benefit LPs. And in my view, I think sus sustainable DEX research is going to be about reducing the 
the value that leaks out of this system entirely. It's not going to be about you, you can't just like benefit swappers by making LPs um, make less money. You can't just benefit LPs by having um, swappers get worse prices. You actually have to find where where is the parts of the system where you can benefit both or, or reduce the leaks that come out of the system. And almost all of those leaks go into MEV. And so I think the types of DEX research, the valuable lines of DEX research correspond to different types of MEV that come out of the uh, of the system. Now, um, I think there's three kinds of MEV there. One is just EIP 5059 um, uh, uh, burn, just uh, ETH that's being, that's being burned, gas cost from the transaction. Um, and that's being paid by both swappers and LPs effectively. Um, that's, I think, a really important one. And Uniswap V4 and Uniswap X both address that one. But for the other two, one is uh, loss versus rebalancing. And that's um, uh, losses that liquidity providers suffer to arbitrageurs. Someone's coming in and they're trading on this pool at a better at a better price than than the liquidity provider maybe should be giving them. So the liquidity provider is, is losing money to uh, to arbs, and that all goes basically to MAV um, in the modern system. Um, and so Uniswap before, and I can talk later about a uh, little about how we think about that, is about uh, addressing those losses to. Um, uh, uh, to arbitrage um, and, and opening up new ways for developers, uh, for AMM designers to reduce that. But Uniswap X, in my view, is largely about uh, the other side, is trying to help the swappers. And one way that, uh, a couple ways that swappers lose money, um, they can be sandwiched. Uh, you can have your, your transaction actually executed at a worse price because somebody traded ahead of you. Um, you can have just ordinary um, slippage. You're trading at a price um, and, you know, the price has moved uh, away from you on the DEX and so you're getting a worse price than you expected. And you could just be getting a worse price than is available somewhere else. And in my view, if, if Uniswap, the system, is not providing swappers with the best possible execution they could be getting anywhere, um, then what are we even doing here? And so that's the um, that's the motivation for me with Uniswap X is how can we actually protect swappers, the swapper side of this, from from getting worse prices than they could otherwise. I think to reword what I what I heard from you, research in AMM and and just you know DEXs on on Ethereum and in crypto broadly has two players that you think need to be held as first class citizens of the highest regard, and everyone else should actually be minimized. And these two players are swappers, people that want one token and have one token and want a different token, and then liquidity providers who are providing liquidity. And I think what you're saying is that research in the realm of DEXs in, in crypto needs to figure out how to optimize for retaining value by the, the, the net between these two players and anyone else, MEV uh, arbitragers, the Ethereum protocol with EIP-1559 needs to be minimized while these two players are maximized. That's how I would reword what you were saying. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's basically how I think about it. Mm -hmm. And then Uniswap X is specifically a technology that benefits swappers the most. It's, yes, largely focused on benefiting swappers. But I think, again, in a way where you're benefiting primarily retail swappers, right, it's not about, it's not about helping arbitrageurs um, trade against, you know, Uniswap LPs more effectively. It's, it's the people who we, who we care most about actually helping here. Okay. So I'd actually like to take this opportunity to start with your, your tweet thread and, and number one, because I think this is where this goes. Your, your first tweet in your thread goes, the architecture of Uniswap X opens up a vast design space for DEXs. And so maybe we can talk about, like, I think the, the secret sauce that Uniswap is uh, Uniswap X is bringing to the table. Uh, we might actually need to define what Uniswap X is for people that didn't listen to our episode with Hayden, um, but I definitely recommend that as well. So what, what, what is the new thing that Uniswap X is bringing to the table? What's the new secret sauce here? Yeah. 
So first I'll say, I, I don't like to use the term new because I think a lot of, as people, as many people have pointed out, a lot of the ideas in Uniswap X have been around in Ethereum DEX space, actually some since before Uniswap. Um, and I think some of the concepts, especially around signed, signed limit orders, I think are, um, uh, you, know, you, you can trace back through, through 0x or even before. Um, and so I think part of what Uniswap X is about is, are we actually at a time when some of these concepts that have been around for a while make, uh, really make sense and start to... Um, uh, be worth integrating into how into how Dex is actually done on Ethereum, which right now again is is dominated by just on chain flows on um, on AMMs. Um, and I I'm, I'm I think actually that there's a lot to be gained from from going to into the into these digging up some of these uh, uh, rich old ideas. So yeah, so so the key idea for me of Uniswap X is that we're moving from a system where all transactions created by retail or uh, users. Are expressed as transactions with a specific um, uh, path. You know, imagine just like a an itinerary of here's I'm going to take exactly this this route on the subway um, to get from point A to point B to an intent um, uh, or a or a limit order. And an intent, if you think about it, is just is just a statement like I want to get to point I'm at point A. I want to get to point B, but I don't necessarily care um, how I get there. And um, you know, there's been a lot of, of discourse on intents, and I think, um, and and you know, a lot uh, prior, even just on the on the more general concept and decks of of limit orders. But I think it's very important that we start actually operating um, with user intents. I think they're in, they're they're incredibly flexible and powerful. And Uniswap X, the main thing to me that it achieves is um, starting to move toward. Uh, toward users expressing their tra- trades as intense as, as limited or saying I'm willing to I want to trade at the best price possible no worse than this particular price rather than um, expressing I want to trade on this exact AMM. So people who have swapped on Uniswap before do you you open up with the asset that you have you open up the asset that you want and then you click confirm and then you, you like approve that transaction in your MetaMask or your ledger or whatever and then you like go to Etherscan to watch that transaction get verified. In that what you're saying is that is a specific the user has chosen their point A and their point B, and then the app, the web app, actually codifies that into a specific transaction. And then the user commits to that transaction, and then that is committed to on-chain. And then a bunch of MEV happens in the background that the user doesn't really see, but definitely does happen. And so I think that's the current meta of swapping. And what you're saying is there's this new alternative called intense, which is, can you explain like how that actually gets expressed and then how that actually turns into the outcome that the user wants? How how is that uh, different from an actual codified transaction? And how does it actually achieve the same result. Right. So the way it works is the user, you know, the user still sees a similar interface on the on the web interface. Mm-hmm. And but when they go to sign um, to, to sign their trade, instead of signing um, a an Ethereum transaction that is again constructed by the by the interface, um, they sign just an off-chain message. They sign they sign um, you know a, a message in a particular format, um, but that isn't an Ethereum transaction. And then it's the job of the entire MEV superstructure um, out there to get this, turn this trans, uh, this intent somehow, package it in, in a transaction that somebody creates, um, and get it included on chain. But this can, this could, you know, in, intents in general could include anything. It's it's a more general format than a than an Ethereum transaction. And um, this the Uniswap Uniswap X uses a particular format where the user commits to a particular. Um, uh, uh, price that price that they're that they're willing to trade at. Um, Uniswap X supports the ability to do a a Dutch order, which is um, a, a kind of off chain Dutch auction where they sign this order 
like, uh, they they say here's my my decay rate, and basically it's going to change the price to make it more. Um, uh, basically, get get a worse, worse or worse price the longer goes uh, goes on until you hit some until you hit some limit, and that's in order to do to facilitate some off chain price discovery for it, and then it also allows the ability to to pick a particular filler um, uh, who gets exclusivity on the trade for for a couple blocks, and that's in order to to enable them to um, potentially through through a request for quote like system off chain find someone to fill this this quote better. But all those all these are details about how this particular transaction format works, and it's I think how we see. Um, uh, this is sort of the the initial way that that Uniswap X um, helps find users the best price. But again, to me, the key is you're moving into now. I'm signing a message that just says uh, expresses my 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 trading intent, and it's up to the system to try to find the best price for it. So, in the example that say just for round numbers, Ether is two thousand uh, dollars, and in the the old way is you would have uh, two thousand USDC, and then you would say, hey, give me one Ether, and then you would ultimately get like. 0.987 ether for a number of different reasons. One of them would be gas fees, one of them would be slippage, one of them would be front running, and a bunch of different participants, both humans and protocol, eat away a little bit at that. And, and I think the way that this intense system works is you actually, since you don't broadcast a transaction, you actually, uh, you, excuse me, you, you do broadcast a message, but you do not make a transaction. And so I, I would I would guess maybe this like this package that you're talking about. You're just saying, hey, I have two thousand USDC. The minimum price that I'll take is one ether for that. But if anyone can give me more than that, then you are allowed to fulfill this order. And and then Dutch auction mm-hmm. is just to define a Dutch auction is uh, you set a high price and then over a period of time that price comes down little by little by little. And I think that's kind of the magic. Can you can you elaborate on why that's so magical for how that actually reduces MEV? Yeah. Yeah. So so the idea there is but when I want to set a if I want to discover the price, suppose I don't know at all what the price is. Mm-hmm. Um, and this by the way, I use Dutch auctions all over in like every mechanism I've done because I think they're just a fantastic mm-hmm. um, uh, way to get decentralized price discovery. Um, uh, but I think this is what it's you know it's one component of of a, a piece of uh, of Uniswap X. But but the way it works is um, when you put if you publish this order to the world um, with some particular starting some particular starting price, if that price is is uh, if anyone in the world can actually fill that, they're incentivized to do it as fast as possible. Um, and so you'll you'll actually get included if they can fill that profitably. So you'll get that included um, as quickly as possible. If nobody can fill that, then okay maybe that price is too high. I'm going to start lowering it. Um, and as soon as if if the um, uh, system is sufficiently competitive and there's enough there's enough potential bidders out there and nobody um, and people aren't censoring multiple blocks at a time and again I think these, these are assumptions that are worth worth uh, questioning um, but in that case basically as soon as this order becomes profitable for anybody in the world to fill they'll fill it and we have the assumption that basically once you hit that point that's the right price to actually fill it at. Now again, like it, it, there, there's some there's some possibility you could lose you could lose a little of the slippage from the system. Like if the price you know uh, moves in the other direction at the same time that your price fails, you maybe don't get the best um, execution possible. And I think there's that's why there are these other systems as part of it. Um, and to me, Uniswap X again is not about just the Dutch order. It's not about the RFQ. It's about this general concept that that we actually get a lot more flexibility from intents. Um, but Dutch, what, that's that's one mechanism that Uniswap X uses to try to make a competitive market for filling orders. I think another way, the way that resonates with me in my brain is is that the Dutch auction mechanism, say say Ether is two thousand price 
$2,000, give or take. But like you said, you actually don't know in the in one single moment of time, you actually don't know what the fair price of Ether is. So you start at like $2,010 and this Dutch auction mechanism lets that decay, you know, 10 cents every second until someone fills it. And I think the, the idea here is that the, the, the most profitable person who can make that trade profitable first at the highest amount, at the highest price possible will fulfill that because they can squeeze a profit out of it. And, and it allows the margins of what you call the system, like this MEV system, the market maker system, it allows the first reasonable, rational person who can make a profit will fulfill that order first. And that's how you're con coming to the conclusion that, well, yes, that was the best possible price for the swapper, right? That's exactly right. Okay. And so I think this is, this is why you come into the second tweet saying it's a better foundation for order flow auctions, order flow auctions versus what, what's the opposite of an order flow auction? What's the other half? Yeah, well, so, right. Well, so, so backing up a little about order flow auctions. So I think we've seen some systems, um, and Flashbots uh, has one called MevShare, and I think there's some others out there, um, where the idea is right now when users trade on decentralized exchanges, often they, um, they may get sandwiched, they may get front run. Um, and one way that you can potentially just make the user strictly better off than they otherwise would be, assuming already that there's so many in transaction, is instead of just letting anybody in the world um, uh, front run this transaction, or even maybe in instead of just letting this transaction get included and see what happens, um, we can auction off the right to, to backrun your transaction. Mm -hmm. And a backrun happens because, uh, you know, when, when if I trade on, a, on an AMM, I might push the price. It might be such a large trade that it pushes the price to a level where it's profitable to, to trade after me. And so I could potentially get a rebate on my, on my transaction um, by if my transaction gets included by basically selling off the right to say you're you're allowed to trade immediately after me. And that's a right that I in some sense mm. have, although it it can be hard to facilitate this market between me and somebody who might want to background me. And so if I can get someone to pay me for the right to background me, I will get a rebate effectively on mm. um, on my transaction. So this is how order flow actions have been implemented um, by by Flashbots and others um, with the transaction model. Mm -hmm. um, now the thing is. I, it's sort of a hilariously inefficient way to actually pay somebody for the MEV that's being created by their transaction. Because what's actually happening there is I'm I'm trading at a worse on on the AMM at a worse price than I actually want to trade at. I, I you know I want to trade maybe like at the current price or at or at a or at a better price, but um, uh, I'm trading at some at some bad price on the AMM, such a bad price and causing so much price impact that actually it's profitable for somebody to pay me to be the trader afterward. Um, to trade the the AMM back in the other direction, and this is you know this involves um, at least two transactions on chain. Um, it involves fees being paid to liquidity providers who haven't actually really done anything because what's happening in this transaction is economically is that I the user am actually just trading with some with some backrunner. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm buying a token that they are selling, and I'm buying you know at at a, at, a, at a, such a bad price for me that they can sell it back to the AMM at a better, at a, at a price that is profitable for them. And so we should just cut out the middleman here. We should actually just have the user and the, the back runner basically trade with each other. But the transaction format doesn't allow this kind of mm. um, uh, order flow auction. And so that's why when you move into an intent, suddenly, you know, all I'm saying is I want to actually trade. I'm not saying it has to be on this particular AMM so that you have to extract this money from, you know, by back running and then making a side payment to me. You can just come in and trade with me at a better price. The the metaphor that I'm getting here, maybe you'll you'll like this one, is is like it sounds like we're trying to build a ship, design a ship that doesn't leave a large wake, 
And it sounds like in this, um, the, the current paradigm of Uniswap trading, where the reasons why um, the pools get balanced or the, who we're trading with is because in order to fulfill that order, there needs to be enough wake for uh, arbitragers to come settle the waters. And right, right now, uh, with, with this off-chain intent model, we actually are just designing a ship that doesn't disturb the waters that much. Is this a fair m- metaphor? Yeah, I like that. I think I think that's the idea is, is you're ultimately getting more efficiency from from doing it this way because it's it's just a more flexible format. Mm-hmm. And so these things that people are are it's so needed that it actually getting hacked into the current model. And I'll give you another example, which is just in time liquidity or JIT liquidity, which I've been going on like a like a rampage about for about a year, mm-hmm. um, partly in preparation for for uh, anticipation of Uniswap X coming out, um, talking about how I think so. JIT liquidity, the way it works, is when somebody's trading and they're going to trade at a bad price, um, someone can come in and provide concentrated liquidity uh, right around the current tick. Uh, right before their trade, and then withdraw it right afterward. And what they're functionally doing is they're improving the user's price impact. They're actually helping the user a little bit um, in, by, by trading against the user. But this, is this too, very gas inefficient. A lot is being paid in 1559. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's not, in this case, like not actually going to liquidity providers. Um, who's it going to? It's, it's basically just being wasted, or it's, or it's going to, to gas costs. Um, the, all the inefficiency of this of the system was really what we want is okay if I'm if I'm a user and I'm about to trade at a bad price can someone just come in and save me um, and again the intense allows us to do this more efficiently. Hmm. Your your second tweet your second point in your five point uh, tweet thread is hmm. it's a better foundation for order flow auctions that return MEV to users. This is yeah. what we're discussing, correct? That's right. Yes. So if if you, if you want to if right now the way that those work and the way they fit into the Uniswap model. Uh, involves like this this multi transaction expensive um, and often inefficient uh, protocol for for like back paying someone to back run them mm-hmm. when really again like when you've got an intent it's much easier to just batch these together and, and and match them against each other so maybe to summarize points one and point two to to the best of my ability there's two there's kind of two birds with one stone in this intent model we get the elegance of the Dutch auction model which like we said earlier naturally f- emergently finds the uh, most profitable act who can give you the best trade and still be profitable themselves. And because it's not on chain, we don't have all of this wake in the transaction. So there's not just-in-time liquidity. There's not back running. There's not two trades that help settle a first trade. It is all done off-chain, which helps retain value from going to EIP-1559 and is helped retained by swappers and also, therefore, um, liquidity providers. So that's my summarization of your first two points. Would you say that's fair? That's right. Although, again, I, I think I would separate out the Dutch auction point um, as being maybe maybe part of yeah it's, it's part of point yeah it's part of point one where it really is like this is the kind of thing you can do with intents that you actually can't do with um, with ordinary transactions on AMMs. Beautiful. Okay, let's go into into number three, which I love. Love is so simple. It's still early, <laughs> which is <laughs> you say that we've opened up a new frontier of uh, of exploration. So, what, so elaborate on like what this new frontier looks like. What's needed in this new frontier? What kind of infrastructure do we need to settle on this new frontier? Like what's left to build here in this new design landscape to help this efficiency become even more efficient? Yeah. So I think part of so part of the motivation for UnisubX is okay. We see all this behavior that's happening on chain with say like JIT liquidity 
or um, or people like designing MEV uh, uh, order flow auctions of like you know MEV auctions, back running auctions, right? And thinking, okay, like this is a sign that actually there's some serious inefficiency here that should be that should be streamlined, that should be improved. And I think, in my view, the the design I think does this and and gets users better prices um, and uh, and is a, you know is more more gas efficient in, in many cases. Um, and I think that's. That's you know why why I think it's uh, I'm excited about it a bit out right now. But really, once you're now we're up in intense space, um, the sky is really the limit on just like how you can actually um, match these orders and um, and uh, process them. So for example, right now the way that UserBex works, every every order is um, well. There's there's there is there is this RFQ process which I alluded to earlier where um, you can um, use you can choose a particular filler to, to fill your order and give them exclusivity for a couple blocks in exchange for basically giving you this, this good quote early on. Um, but right now that's, you know, the trades are being matched primarily against these, um, these fillers. But what, ha- what happens when you actually start to match uh, user trades against other user trades um, when you do something more like a batch auction, um, like, like CowSwap uh, Innovated? I think what happens when you start to do um, – uh, you can do some sort of more interesting math with that, right? Like when you have a bunch of, when, suppose you have like a bunch of user orders, you can execute them all at a common clearing price. So there's algorithms for trying to do that. Um, you can you can do like you know match ring trades where you have multiple um, uh, tr- uh, assets being traded, and you try to like maximize the total the total mm. amount of volume. These can be you know you can encrypt these orders. Right, like you can, um, and I'm I'm not sure how how much other uh, some of these other solutions have have done this yet, but you can actually say like, all right, we're gonna have everybody um, do a sealed bid batch auction that's actually enforced by cryptography, um, where you encrypt your orders, you you do a, a this homomorphic computation on it to try to compute basically the the common clearing price, or or you unseal it by using a using a group um, or some multi party computation, um, uh, and that gives you like a like a more decentralized or fair potentially fairer. Um, uh, auction. You can match it against on-chain uh, liquidity using a, using a particular algorithm. Um, you can uh, uh, put it in trusted hardware, uh, which I'll talk about in a moment. But like you can, you know, it's, it's much easier potentially for uh, trusted hardware to operate on orders because they can include basically all the information you need about them right in the order without having to in- involve interaction with a bunch of Ethereum state. Um, like for all these reasons, they're just more tractable. And so I I think like the, in the long run. Um, I have no idea actually what these things will look like, um, but I think I know. I'm pretty sure it's going to look like some kind of intent, some kind of um, when users express their their desire to trade. It's going to look more like an intent, I think, than a particular on-chain transaction. And that's because you know, they're, they're just so much more flexible. So there's just a lot more room to explore. Yeah, it's the flexibility of the expressivity of an intent, as in it's very, very open-ended. I think maybe an, another way to help define an intent is it just provides like kind of a, the bowling alley guardrails as to like, here's what I, here's everything I don't want, but anything inside in this specific uh, specific landscape of what I do want, you're allowed to give me. And so basically saying you you just write the rules of like, hey, you can't give me less than this. And then the mechanism will naturally give you as much as possible. And, but not codifying it, I think, allows for a lot of expressivity. And I think that's one half of the magic um, that I think you're, uh, you're talking about. The other half is that, like, since it's off-chain, the costs of computation are zero, if there's no there's no gas costs to matching orders of user A to user B to user C, we, you can compile every single order together all at once. And all of that computation that it takes to clear those orders doesn't have to actually run on a blockchain that can run on some local market maker's server. And all of a sudden we get really good 
uh, order execution from not having to be encumbered by blockchain computation. Uh, that's my intuition. Is this right? Is this right? That's right. And I think just off-chain computation is is incredibly powerful. Um, and we actually saw just with with the rise of the of the professional professionalized Mev ecosystem, just a tremendous amount of of ingenious work being an optimization being done off-chain. Um, and I think this is this is something where you know a lot of people see Mev as a threat, but as a and as a protocol designer, often it is. You know that if you leave some um, opportunity open to be to be optimized um, you know, for for Mev, uh, someone is going to take it. And so, like, you can't be lazy as a protocol designer. Maybe as lazy as you could have been, um, maybe in like 2018. But it, it also is a huge opportunity. It's a, it's a it's a massive um, support. And I, I uh, think of it as like um, a swarm of nanobots that's always in the air around us, and if you just le- were to like leave out an apple on the mm-hmm. on the table, it's not only just in here; it becomes a core, mm-hmm. right? Like because the the nanobots like to swarm and eat it. And if you you know th- this is scary because it means like you can't leave your food out uh, lying around, but it also means okay, like this is useful. It's like if I want to like you know clean something, I can just like spread you know spread some jam on it or something, and you know that the nanobots are going to come um, eat that and, and do that task for you, and. Um, that's what that's how we how we rely on this system in the in with Dutch orders right in Uniswap X is you say okay we know that with a Dutch auction if we auction this like it's an it's a, an efficient enough Mev market that like someone's going to take it um, someone is going to pick up this money that's lying there and as a result we can we can rely on this and and the user it helps the user right that like this this opportunity for profit is not going to to be left un, unclaimed because if it were then the auction might clear too late mm-hmm. at a worse price than the user would otherwise get but because you know that this is efficient off chain um you can rely on that and that's like that's something that i think is is really has changed in the past couple of years where there were a lot of protocols in uh, people were talking about in like 2017 2018 where you couldn't actually rely on just there being efficient uh, every efficient arbitrage being taken and like oh someone is incentivized to like cha- do it you know challenge this thing so they will um that's something that today is actually much more realistic than it used to be mm-hmm. who are these nanobots who are the players that make up this like swarm of, of nanobots when, when we open up this new frontier what, what are the like verticals that actually compose this swarm of nanobots i'm sure we got like market makers we got mev bots uh, what, what composes this swarm yeah, so I think there's I think there's professional that's right there's professional market makers. There's a lot of especially for atomic mev, a lot of amateur uh, mev searchers um who I think, you know, it's just like the it's just it's sort of amazing how you've seen this actually happen where by lowering the barrier to entry to becoming a a mev a mev searcher, you actually just found that um, basically, all you know, all topic mev gets gets extracted pretty quickly by often people you know who are um, in in high school or um, or in the basement somewhere. Um, or you know, I, I don't. I really don't. I don't actually know. Um, that's part of the beauty of it. And that's you know, with, when we're talking about the Ethereum is a dark forest post uh, before, that's that was this this realization that we had that actually um, the bots are a lot smarter than you might than you might even have, have anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you actually, you know, the, this this someone has if there's some behavior out there, like you should suspect or worry at least that somebody's written a bot to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think again, like once you get to this. Uh, uh, once, once you're once you're in this world, yeah, and like you, you can sort of just treat it as a force of nature. The the uh, kind of efficient market hypothesis here that okay, if we if we're creating Mev here, then it's going to be claimed, and we rely on that. For example, in like Blend is a protocol that I worked on with the with the Blur team, mm-hmm. um, where we also use Dutch auctions because again, I love Dutch auctions. But um, if you know, you might get your NFT liquidated if there wasn't an efficient market here, because because uh, if somebody closes out a loan. Um, what happens is there's, there's a Dutch auction to continue it. And if nobody was out there just looking for opportunities to um, 
uh, to lend at a profitable interest rate, then like potentially someone loses their NFT. But you can kind of rely on have, do do a trust fall onto the MEV searcher ecosystem and just know that somebody's going to actually claim that. Are you a MetaMask user? Well, you're listening to Bankless, so of course you are. The wallet you know and love just got a whole lot better. MetaMask Portfolio is the ultimate one-stop shop for all of your crypto needs. It gives you a holistic view of your crypto portfolio across multiple chains and multiple addresses all at once. You can easily view and manage all your coins, tokens, and NFTs in one convenient place just by connecting your wallet. MetaMask Portfolio goes beyond just viewing your portfolio. Though. Inside the portfolio, you can do all the incredible money verbs that make DeFi so powerful. You can buy, swap, bridge, and stake your crypto assets with ease. It's like having a powerful battle station for all your DeFi moves right at your fingertips. So if you're looking to do more in Web3 your way, MetaMask Portfolio is the answer. I already know that you have MetaMask Wallet, so go check out your MetaMask Portfolio. Learn more at metamask.io portfolio. Mantle, formerly known as BitDAO, is the first DAO-led Web3 ecosystem, all built on top of Mantle's first core product, the Mantle Network, a brand new high-performance Ethereum Layer 2 built using the OP stack, but uses Eigenlayer's data availability solution instead of the expensive Ethereum Layer 1. Not only does this reduce Mantle Network's gas fees by 80%, but it also reduces gas fee volatility, providing a more stable foundation for Mantle's applications. The Mantle Treasury is one of the biggest DAO-owned treasuries, which is seeding an ecosystem of projects from all around the Web3 space for Mantle. Mantle already has sub-communities from around Web3 onboarded, like Game7 for Web3 Gaming, and Bybit for TVL and Liquidity and OnRails. So if you want to build on the Mantle network, Mantle is offering a grants program that provides milestone-based funding to promising projects that help expand, secure, and decentralize Mantle. If you want to get started working with the first DAO-led Layer 2 ecosystem, check out Mantle at mantle.xyz and follow them on Twitter at 0xMantle. Arbitrum is accelerating the Web3 landscape with a suite of secure Ethereum scaling solutions. Hundreds of projects have already deployed onto Arbitrum 1 with a flourishing DeFi and NFT ecosystem. Arbitrum Nova is quickly becoming a Web3 gaming hub and social dApps like Reddit are also calling Arbitrum home. And now Arbitrum Orbit allows you to use Arbitrum's secure scaling technology to build your own layer three, giving you access to interoperable, customizable permissions with dedicated throughput. All of these technologies leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum and provide a builder experience that's intuitive, familiar, and fully EVM compatible. Faster transaction speeds and significantly lower gas fees. Arbitrum empowers you to explore and build without compromise. Visit Arbitrum.io where you can join the community, dive into the developer docs, bridge your assets, and start building your first app on Arbitrum. I'd like to add um, an important uh, player in this in this role, and this is it brings us to your fourth point in your tweet thread, which are bridges. Um, in, in your fourth tweet, you say seamless cross chain and especially cross chain swaps will be revolutionary. So, how does Uniswap X and this intent based meta change the game for um, the nature of Ethereum's roll up centric roadmap? How is this a player here? Yeah. So. Um... One way, one way I can talk about this. Okay, so I, I'm I'm really excited about this. It's something that that Uniswap is planning to, to roll out later this year. But this is for cross chain swaps using Uniswap X, and you can use Uniswap X for in you know it's in the white paper the description of how this protocol works. But it's pretty simple adjustment to the algorithm where um, if I'm you know if I'm I express my intent on Ethereum um, to have ETH on on Optimism rather than just to have like die on on Ethereum, or you could say you know I have ETH on Ethereum and I want to have die on Optimism or something like that. You just express uh, where you want to actually have the the asset. And the thing is, if there's a message passing bridge from the place that I want to go to to the place where I currently am, um, that can pass basically the the proof of the fulfillment of this through. Then I can have my order claimed on on you know uh, on Ethereum. 
and then uh, uh, filled on um, uh, on optimism, and then and then the uh, so the success of this is actually passed through. And a couple of cool things about this: one is with the Dutch order mechanism. Uh, this can actually be a really decentralized um, uh, competitive market for how to um, get money off of uh, from from one roll up to another. So, like the price is, is set by the market, and anybody who who actually has assets on both chains um, and wants to run the strategy can do this. Uh, you don't have to depend on on being like a trusted party um, uh, or having or having like on chain liquidity or anything. Um, second, I think the 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 liquidity can be off chain, um, and. Uh, uh, I think it's just it's much more efficient. For one thing, if you just have bridges and you're trying to bridge over, you know, ETH from one from one uh, chain to like some wrapped ETH on another chain, bridged ETH on another chain, um, if that involves a huge uh, AMM pool, like a lot of liquidity providers with just static bridged assets there, that's a massive honeypot. You just have to hold ex- have exposure to this to like bridged ETH over there, and I think it's actually a much cleaner model to have the liquidity be off chain and like I'm holding the, their native asset on this other chain, right? Or I'm holding um, some uh, something else, you know, or, or, or die or something. Like I don't actually have to have a huge pot of of bridged asset over there, and I think that's just like hugely valuable. But with rollups, again, often you have a canonical ETH there. And third is um, there's a really nice property where and I, I mentioned going one direction, but if you go the other way for fast roll exits on rollups, this is like. This is a design we talked about for fast rollups and exits, like on uh, and plasma and, and rollups, like years ago. Uh, but it's but it's uh, it's a very neat feature. Is you can um, uh, I there's a fast bridge from Ethereum to Optimism, right? Like there's just a, a, a native bridge in Optimism. You don't have to use the the slow exit for it. As a result of that, you can actually build a fast exit protocol from Optimism to Ethereum, where if I have ETH on Optimism, I can get onto Ethereum or onto another rollup for that matter. You can get it over to it. But let's just talk about Ethereum for now. Um, really quickly, and the way that works is I have my my ETH on Optimism, and I basically auction off the right to um, uh, do a Dutch auction. Say, send me ETH on on Ethereum, um, and once someone does, they will basically be able to they'll be able to send a message, a fast message from Ethereum mm-hmm. to Optimism that then claims my. Um, it takes five minutes or ten minutes or whatever, uh, whatever it does. Um, that then claims the uh, my trade. So the filler, um, I'm sorry, the swapper in the happy case, the swapper immediately, basically, is, is like faster than um, uh, even this bridge. Uh, you know, within like within like a minute, uh, gets the gets their money on on mainnet. The filler can actually conclude this swap by the time that their transaction, uh, their message has moved from Ethereum to Optimism. Um, and um, and yeah, so in the happy case, generally, like this, this uh, all concludes within you know, like uh, within fifteen minutes or something. And I think that's just going to be incredibly efficient for for getting money off of rollups. One final really cool thing I see about it is um, if you want to go the, the example I started with, you want to go the other direction, you might actually get paid to bridge from Ethereum to Optimism because you can effectively rebalance somebody who wants to exit. So if somebody's trying to exit um, Optimism, whether they're they're a mar- maybe they're a market maker. Um, uh, who, who previously bridged somebody onto Optimism for, uh, uh, or off of Optimism for a fee. So now they have Optimism ETH. Um, they might actually be willing to pay you more than one ETH to get your ETH, um, uh, mainnet ETH. And so you might actually, and I, I'm not sure how the economics will work quite yet, um, but there, it's conceivable that you might actually get paid to, to bridge your money onto a roll-up. How does this change the nature of bridges? Because they're, they're I, I remember in 2021, 2022, the... B- building a bridge across rollups was like a big movement, right? We have uh, Socket, we have LiFi, we have Hot Protocol, we have Across, uh, all of these bridges. H- how are these bridges, if we go into this intent-based paradigm, how do the nature of bridges change? 
So I think some of these bridges, and I'm, I'm not an expert in, in how all of these work. I do think Across actually has some, has some similar characteristics to how Uniswap works and other, other ones do. Um, so I'm not, I'm not calling out any particular bridges um, uh, either positively or negatively uh, here. But I think some depend on, on this kind of like on-chain liquidity. And this is ironic for, for me and, and Uniswap to be, to be sort of uh, talking about moving away from, from having on-chain liquidity for, um, for bridges. But um, <laughs> having... having uh, uh, yeah, like like having if you imagine just oh you you actually get some like re- some canonical representation of like optimism ETH on um uh or optimism bridged ETH over on Arbitrum and then there's an AMM on on Arbitrum where you can now like trade that. Um I think that for one thing it becomes a honeypot where if this bridge there's a lot of money right now that rides in the security of this bridge um and potentially could get could get hacked by this. And we've seen we've seen catastrophic the most catastrophic uh, hacks of course in in crypto history are bridges. Um in part because you just have a lot of money um that's just that's just sitting there, right? It's sitting in like one contract because the money's off like off doing something else, but the, but like the representation of the money is, is is going somewhere else. But here it's like it's just like sitting right. in this bridge contract that and it's exposed to this um to this thing. In what I like about Uniswap X uh, from a security perspective is only the only money that's at risk is swap, uh, to, that's exposed to the bridge is um, is swaps currently in flight. Um, swaps currently so, in flight. In flight, yeah. So uh, basically, like once the swap has concluded, so the, somebody somebody starts a starts a swap, right? Um, and then a, uh, they, a swapper a swapper expresses their intent; they want to bridge over. A filler on on that chain claims, okay, I says I'm going to I'm going to fill you. They basically make a promise to fill them. Now this right now the swapper is exposed to the bridge risk. But then the filler immediately, hopefully, fills them on the other on the other chain, and now the swapper no longer has bridge risk. Like they they get they they've already been filled, so they it's like they're exposed for like a minute. And then if the uh, if the bridge gets hacked, like people should stop swapping on it. Um, so but you know like there's that minute maybe when 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 they're exposed, um, and then for the filler. Um, they actually now they, they they use the bridge. They have to use the bridge to actually send a message back to claim the swapper to get the swapper's money. Um, but once once they do, they're no longer exposed to the bridge risk. They don't mm-hmm. have any money like like overnight. If they turn off their server and they stop uh, filling stuff, they're not exposed to the bridge, so they can they can sleep easier. Mm-hmm. And I think that's getting rid of that honeypot quality of uh, of bridges is just is just a, a huge improvement. To make sure I understand this, there are certain bridges that when you use them you create a representation of the asset on the chain that is beholden to the bridge that put it there, correct? And so like, say say we have bridge, just to make up a bridge name, bridge like bridge one, two, three, new bridge I just invented, bridge one, two, three. And then you have Mm -hmm. Ether on main chain Ethereum and you use bridge one, two, three to get your Ether onto Optimism. It's not Optimism Ether, it's Bridge one two three ether on optimism, and that is the right. honeypot because it's this bridge that is now this persistent custodian of this ether, that is a IOU on optimism, but it's not canonical ether. And canonical ether, right. we would say, is ether that's deposited into the canonical optimism bridge. Correct? Yeah, exactly. And 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 you know, it's possible for the swap. Maybe the swapper trades immediately from that um, optimism ETH. Into uh, oh sorry from that one two three ETH into Optimism ETH, mm-hmm. um, so maybe the swapper doesn't have long term exposure to the bridge uh, to the bridge, but Someone if does. that liquidity's on chain, if the liquidity's on chain, it might be like they've got it in an AMM, right? Like right. some anyone could provide liquidity on this AMM on a particular roll up between one two three ETH and OP ETH, and that's exposed as long as somebody's providing liquidity on in that uh, as an LP in that pool, they're exposed to that bridge risk. Whereas if that liquidity's off chain, the way that it is in Uniswap X. 
they're actually not exposed while they're not actually currently executing a trade. So the, this, um, I would, it, it logically concludes in that it, it, assets that are on layer twos or, you know, non-Ethereum chains are most likely going to be assets that are represented by the canonical bridge for that chain. So like the Optimism bridge, the Arbitrum bridge, the actual bridge that creates right. the layer two, not another ancillary bridge that isn't relevant to the layer two. That's right. And that, this is why I think it's it's incredibly um, powerful in the roll-up case specifically, because so every, every roll-up uh, has a canonical bridge, a message passing bridge from mainnet to um, uh, to the rollup. Mm-hmm. Um, every rollup has uh, canonical versions of uh, of all like EOC twenty and Ethan NFT assets. I think generally uh, from the, from Ethereum that have been bridged over to that. Right. So you don't actually have to have a, a remote representation of the you know the way that you might with Solana. You have to have some remote ETH. Like so, like how do we get there? I think there's a lot of challenges in, in how to in how to figure out how to do that securely. But we don't actually need that with with rollups because there's there's the canonical bridge, um, and so uh, it, it becomes really useful to just say let's just. We, we don't have to solve that problem. We only need to solve the swapping problem. I've got ETH over here. I need ETH over here. Um, and then we just try to reduce all the risks around um, uh, around that. And then, you know, I think the, the other benefit is because this bridge to mainnet, the nice thing is the bridge to main from mainnet to the to the rollup generally is a fast bridge. And like the the big one of the biggest downsides of especially optimistic rollups is the exit is, can be, is slow. Um, but the nice thing here is this uh, optimism, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Uniswap X, Turns a fast bridge from uh, message passing bridge from B to A uh, into a fast asset passing bridge from from A to B. Right, um, and so it makes it it's it's designed basically to to create these trustless um, fast exits. Right. Um, which I think is very nice. Would you say an intent based swap paradigm is also a bridge minimalism paradigm? Um, I would say they 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 fit together very nicely and. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say I say they fit together very nicely. Cool. Okay, and then I would just I would assume the nature of this is like it's probably one of the big uh, UX UI problems, UX problems of just like bridging is not bridging is a burden. Br- bridging is a chore. It's not like yeah. friendly for users, and so this is probably one of the many things that we need in order to improve the um, composability issues that Ethereum's rollup centric roadmap brings to the table. Yeah. I mean, in my view, it should be really easy. If you want to buy a token and that token happens to be native to, to some rollup um, and you ha- your money is on some other rollup, it should be basically like, you know, it should be transparent. You, you should see that that you're buying this asset on this on this rollup so you know actually the exposure you're getting. But it shouldn't be any harder than buying an asset. You know, you should just go to Uniswap where you already are maybe going to buy the asset and you can just trade from one uh, from one chain directly to, to a different asset on a different chain. Um, I think that I think that's. It's a big UX problem right now that you actually have to even think about bridges at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so of course this isn't a panacea for solving the cross rollup composability issues, but man, it sounds like a really big step towards that direction. Yeah, that's the hope. Okay, so that was number four. Moving on to number five, the final one. You say Uniswap X complements Uniswap V4, which is designed to enable new techniques to sustainably improve passive liquidity provision. Can you unpack that statement for us? Why does Uniswap X complement Uniswap V4? And, and what, what's the significance of all this? Yeah, so a couple of ways. First, going back to what I, how I started this, I do think they are 
Units of V4 and units of X each are primarily designed to to serve each each half of that of that ecosystem that I was referring to earlier. Uniswap V4 is about new ways of protecting passive liquidity providers. Uniswap X is about ensuring that swappers are getting the best prices. Um, and so I think I think you know maintaining that balance is important. Um, and uh, I I think I think there the designs that help one are often very sort of very different from the designs that help the other. But when you're helping them, you, it's generally not at the expense of the other. Um, at least at least in my view, because again, like in the long run, these are these are our users. This is this is the um, uh, the system, and like you can't you can't like just screw over swappers in order to help LPs um, long term. You'll you'll end up with with no one swapping on your on your decks anymore, um, or vice versa. So. Um, some specific ways in which it complements it. So one is, I think, uh, well, they have some, they, another way, they have common themes. So Uniswap V4 is about um, flexibility. It's about allowing someone who has a cool design for a DEX to build it as a, as a, on, on this platform um, uh, on Uniswap V4 rather than building it as a, as a, as a fork or as a, as a different pool. Um, and I think uh, that's, you know, that's similarly with, with Uniswap X, uh, it's much less opinionated about how this trade actually gets um, gets executed, and you know, again, like I said before, the, you can use a, basically the same on-chain format. Um, basically, you don't have to change Uniswap X the protocol itself at all in order to radically change how you actually match these things off-chain. Um, and I think that's, uh, yeah, I think that's just just a really um, uh, it's a shared theme there where we thought, oh, like you know, there's there actually is this very wide design space, and Uniswap doesn't have to be as opinionated anymore, um, and 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 we can open up more more innovation um, from others and from and from um, uh, Uniswap Labs and from people who contribute to the ecosystem. Um, so that's that's the second way, and then the third is uh, some specific ways Uniswap v four because of this of this new innovation uh, and, and openness means you'll probably get just a lot more pools um, on chain. And routing uh, across uh, and between those pools is going to be a tough problem. Um, and uh, I I think it's one nice thing about Unisub X is it actually outsources the problem of figuring out how do we route across um, this multiplicity of pools to this incentivized network of, of fillers um, and and generally the, the MEV ecosystem. And right now already MEV does a pretty good job, job of arbitraging pools. Um, if you build a new AMM, it... You know, even if your docs are terrible um, and you don't have an API and everything, it will probably get arbed. Basically, <laughs> like if if anyone can, if it's if it's easier to arb than it is to like hack, find a zero day in in Viper, right. um, you know, because that happens. <laughs> so like, if it's easier if it's easier to arb it, um, then it will get arbed. Mm-hmm. And so um, you just you know. Similarly, we, we have that for arbitrage across pools. We don't have that right now for for um, routing the uh, swaps. For if you've got like an uninformed flow order, like what's the best way to actually route it? I think we don't really have um, a decentralized ecosystem trying to get users the best swap possible, um, and that's what we're trying to do with Uniswap X. Yeah, the the thing that I saw between Uniswap V4 and Uniswap X is is both that it pushes computation to the margins, and like you said, yeah, like you said, Uniswap X is for the swappers. Uniswap V4 is for the liquidity providers. Maybe you can take a moment, uh, Bankless listeners. I'll, I'll have told them to definitely listen to our episode with Hayden on Uniswap V4, as well as our episode with Hayden about Uniswap X prior to this. But just to to unpack Uniswap V4, why why does Uniswap V4 benefit LPs? And how does that ben- how does that if we've been talking about this entire episode about Uniswap X benefiting swappers, what does Uniswap V4? What's the secret sauce about Uniswap V4 and how, what it does for LPs? Yeah. So, I'll start by talking about about Uniswap V3. Um and so, you know, with with Uniswap 
uh, when we started working on Uniswap v3, we were thinking about what are the big challenges to to in Uniswap. Well, what are we trying to solve? And I think we landed on capital efficiency for for liquidity provision um, as a as a major problem to solve. And I think that's true, both because. Um, it was just very, it's just very capital inefficient to provide liquidity at all in all price ranges, and you actually just get it's much easier on LPs. It benefits LPs, but also because LP, it it increases the the creativity that LPs can can approach this problem with. You can say like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna provide using this, you know, some particular. I want to provide during, during using some different like static curve, and you can construct that with just a bunch of liquid of Uniswap positions. You might want to like actively rebalance, and you can do that as well. It opens up this this range of possibilities and this freedom for LPs to to figure out how they're actually going to going to use the system as opposed to we're forcing you all into one bucket. And I think um you know that that made sense in 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 2021 um in part because a lot of the innovation that was happening in uh, around AMMs at the time was about like well what's the shape of the liquidity curve that I'm providing. Um, and you're trying to be, so like curve for example like providing a, a concentrated liquidity um you know Specifically, pretty opinionated, but like very much designed for for pegged uh, assets or for stable coins. Um, that was that was a big innovation in indexes because it actually makes a lot more sense for you to provide liquidity that way. Um, so so Uniswap v three is a way to build like your own curve like AMM, right? You can you can pick us uh, uh, whatever AMM you'd want to do. You do that with. What we saw actually in 2022 and 2023 is um, the innovation is moving away from just how or you know what kind of liquidity shape is your liquidity. It's moving toward these more creative um, things that actually get into how the DEX is designed itself, and a lot of that is around, for example. Um, uh, well, what's what's like the initial price? What's what are the fees that we set? Like, can we change the fees, which is not possible to really do in V three? Although you can pick you can pick which which pool to provide in, but on like one pool, the fees are static. Um, can we force only particular users are allowed to trade, or you get to auction off the right to um, to like to set the fee or to or to um, or to be the first trader in a block? There's a lot of different new features you might want to add that just don't fit into the V three framework. Um, but you, they do into V4. So with with V4, the idea is we add these hooks that allow people to get more creative in in um, in what kind of uh, uh, strategies they provide. And so yeah, I'd, I'd see it as you know this is a way where, where if a liquidity provider wants to actually run a particular strategy, they can actually just build their own pool, or someone can build one that they can aggregate many liquidity providers in. Um, so getting into into the details of where those are, I think so, I will say I don't think we have a solution to loss versus rebalancing, which is this this general problem of of liquidity providers being armed. And in fact, like, I think there is. There's no, there's no general solution, um, and I think like you can. There, there are ways that we th- we think uh, can actually minimize and reduce and reduce it. But ultimately, and I think it's it's it may be also be a cat and mouse game forever. And that's one of the reasons why it's not we're trying to enshrine this one solution. And before it's instead we're opening up this this design space where anyone can. But some of the ideas I think that um, that can be done. I think Alexander Nislobin on on Twitter had a had a neat idea about setting fees. Um, based on the on where the price moved in the previous block, and I'll give you just, just a very quick uh, design of it. But this is an example of one of the things that can pretty easily be built using hooks, um, using using Uniswap before. The idea is if the if the price has you know is in block n, suppose the the um, the price has moved from you know the ETH price has moved from um, uh, from two thousand dollars to like twenty one hundred dollars. At this point, so then there's there's probably been a big arb, you know, price move that that happens um, uh, in this pool, where somebody arbed it basically to exactly the right point, where they made did the imagine the profit maximizing arb. Um, so the price has now moved to like you know to twenty one hundred dollars. Okay, the thing is, when they were trading, they were paying a fee, and so they probably pushed the price so that not like the midpoint price, but actually like the very extreme of when you're trading up, they were paying they were paying exactly twenty one hundred dollars. So if what Uniswap 
V3, you know, or V2 or whatever thinks is the price right now is like $2,100 minus 30 bips. Right. That it's actually like like the midpoint price. But a better estimate would actually be exactly $2,100 because that was the final price that the that the ARB, previous ARB paid for it. And so that's so then you can tr- adjust the fees so that actually um, just move, move the fee window so that uh, it, it takes that into account. So anyway, that, that's that's like the, the core idea there. But it's, it's just all it involves is, is adjusting the fees, which is provided by the Uniswap V4 hook. Um, and I think I think it's a clever idea. And that's like the kind of thing you know, we have other ideas on it. Um, and I think we'll be publishing some stuff later this year um, on some of my ideas. And I'm, I'm try to be pretty open about what kind of ideas I'm working on with this um, in general. But like in my view, like, those are the kinds of things where you can just eke out some improvements um, for, for liquidity providers using V4 features that we may not have even imagined. That wasn't an idea that I had had, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty cool. It's been a, a while since I've been uh, an LP and I've never been an LP in Uniswap V3 because I just it's seemingly pretty sophisticated and also intensive. But the meta that I've come to understand through my conversations with people is that being an LP is losing generally. Like you're losing money on, on average, especially if you're passive LPing. And so I, I'm wondering if like this side of the Uniswap equation isn't complete yet. You, We've talked about Uniswap X and Intense, and that feels like a logical conclusion of where swapping goes. But it's, uh, but I don't know, and, and uh, I, I'm maybe asking you for a little illumination here. It doesn't seem like we've reached a point of sustainability for liquidity providing inside of of Uniswap because Uniswap V2 definitely and Uniswap V3 also from my intuition and from my conversations, people aren't making sustainable money in order to supply sufficient liquidity into this side of things. So maybe you could help kind of um, just like define the contours of this conversation. It's like, why aren't LPs making money? Where's that, where's that coming from? And, and how, and, and does Uniswap V4 fix this enough? Or like maybe, maybe you can kind of take it from here. Yeah. So this is a, it is a, it's a very complicated question and it's one where I, I've mostly just been relying on others' work uh, for this. I've tried to look into it a little myself. Um, my best read of, of the literature on this, and I think the big focus, almost like half of Uniswap V3's volume, goes, is the USDC with 5-bit pool. And that's, like, that's just like the big – I consider that – that's all right, let's, let's like focus on that pool. Um, my best understanding is that the average liquidity provider on that pool loses money. And I'm, I don't actually, so to me, this is a weird mystery because I don't actually know, I don't know people who provide liquidity on that pool. Um, I don't know why people do. I have, I have a few possible theories that I can go into it a little more, but part of what I'll say is I think we designed the system um, so that if it's, you know, you, you should see some equilibrium where, okay, if it's not profitable by liquidity, then there should be less liquidity. It, my best understanding of what people have, people have published is that it seems like liquidity is overprovided in total on that pool. Um, but I actually, I don't, you know, I don't know that for sure. And it seems confusing to me why people would, would provide liquidity if they're consistently losing money. So I, do, I just don't have an answer to that, to that puzzle. And if somebody has a good answer, I would actually love, love to hear it. Um, cause I feel sort of dumb that I, that I don't, don't have a better explanation than, but, but maybe they, they know something that we don't, and maybe they're doing something. One, one, one point is, think, is yeah. they're just lazy, not a valid answer. Yeah, I don't think so. And one of the reasons is you mentioned passive versus active. Uh, at least one of the studies I saw says that active liquidity providers lose more money than passive. Oh wow! And really? It, well, for one thing, you know, you're when you're rebalancing, you're paying gas every time you rebalance. You're also mm. um, probably in practice trading, um, maybe trading on chain, right. um, and, and, and being suffering an active some liquidity slippage. provider, and also being a trader is 
slightly synonymous. Right. And so you're maybe getting some slippage or price impact when you rebalance. Um, and so I don't remember if this if this analysis actually included that. But like it, it doesn't actually it doesn't shock me necessarily that actually like providing really active liquidity um on a pool, like you might you might lose more money because yeah, again, you're you're basically paying paying fees doing slippage every time you do that. Um but yeah, I, I, I'm willing to believe that the, the liquidity is overprovided on V3. I just don't have a good answer for why it still happens. Um, one, one possible theory is there are people who are making – so all these results are about um, – are on average, basically. Um, and I think some have tried to have tried to break it down a little bit. It's hard to identify who liquidity providers are. One possibility is some liquidity providers are making just money hand over fist and everyone else is losing money. And there's a, it's a constant tournament to try to – um, to be that guy, mm. to, to try to get ahead. And so people, so, you know, that's, that's like one, sort of like the like online poker theory of, um, uh, of liquidity mm. provision. It's like, yeah, like on average, online poker players are losing money. And yet, you, or in the peak of it, I think like there were studies, like they were all like mostly on average losing money, but partly there was just a lot of churn and who is actually trying to be there and, and whoever's at the top is making money. So that's, that's like one possible theory. And another, another is just like people are dumb, but it, it also is weird because like, when you mentioned laziness, like the people who are doing the most, like who are writing these complicated bots, seem to be losing uh, uh, money, maybe more money than others. I don't actually have a good explanation for it. Oh yes, interesting. Yeah. So so, but going back to your, going back to your to your question, um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree, and that's why, and I think V four is is largely focused on can we actually really address this and make liquidity providers more profitable? Cool. And the, of course, the beautiful thing about Uniswap V four is that these hook strategies are likely going to be built. Not obviously holistically, not not as a sweeping broad statement, but um, a big source of innovation, de- demand for innovation for hooks is going to become from LPs trying to figure out how to fairly capture sustainable fees in order to make their activity more profitable. At least that's my interpretation. Yeah. One thing I, I quickly want to get, provide a take for you on to, to, to get your reactions to is Uniswap's own app layer. Um, Infinity Pools is a new app that's built using Uniswap LP tokens as assets. And also, I think like the success of something like Infinity Pools would create demand for Uniswap LP assets, which creates demand for liquidity. Is Uniswap's own app layer that has LP tokens as assets a potential source for LP yields. Yeah, I think that's I think that's possible. From what I've seen, so I, I, in general, the idea. Okay, look, there are these uh, passive liquidity providers. There seems to be demand for this kind of exposure. Maybe they're maybe like rebalancing or hedging or something. Um, and so, like, are there ways we can actually provide them this exposure? Like, basically, you get paid yield for holding this convex position. Um, uh, or concave position, I guess, actually is the term. Um, the question is, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, so the question is, like, are there more interesting pr- products that we can provide liquidity providers um, to get this and, and potentially increase their yields? I think, I think quite plausibly, a lot of the designs I've seen involve basically removing your liquidity from, uh, like basically you borrow some liquidity and then you actually like pull the liquidity out of the pool. Um, and so I... I it's never been that clear to me for a lot of these products why actually you need the Uniswap part. Um, uh, or like, is it actually, does it actually cause liquidity on net to be more often in Uniswap? And I've seen like different answers for some of those. So I'm, I'm not as sure about any of the particular instances of this, uh, of these kinds of products, but generally I think, yeah, like trying, trying to find ways to make liquid, give liquidity, it's, there's demand to provide liquidity as we see on Uniswap V3, there is demand to do this. And so the question is like, like, okay, can we actually provide them this, what they're trying to get out of this, uh, better with a better price or with, with better yields? I think it's definitely, um, is something I think is, is, is something where innovation of the app layer is awesome. 
Well, Dan, I think this was a, a fantastic first exploration into what is uh, a brand new rabbit hole in the world of intense and off-chain orders and Uniswap X and bridging. Uh, it seems to be that you know crypto always has some cool rabbit hole to throw at us. One rabbit hole that I know that's out there that we're going to go investigate is uh, Suave out of Flashbots. We're doing an episode in three to four weeks with uh, Phil Diane and Andrew Miller. And I'm wondering if you can just help me incept listeners' brains with with Suave, why they should be excited about it, what the, what the TLD is and just overall prepare them for an episode that's going to come in the future. Yeah. So I'll give you, I think, why why I'm excited about Suave. And it's maybe a, um, it's as as a kind of like user application developer. Um, so, so my perspective on what, on what makes me excited. And part of it is, you know, we've, we have this on-chain infrastructure. And what was, one thing that was exciting about Uniswap V1 and V2 is that we could build these um, protocols, decentralized, completely decentralized protocols that, um, uh, where basically everything happened on chain, and then all this stuff is done for you, where you can just like write your logic on on chain, and um, uh, basically, yeah, you know it'll be, you know it'll actually be executed, um, uh, and, it's, and it's fully decentralized. But you know, there's all these costs of doing stuff on on chain. You don't actually, especially with stuff you don't actually need like global consensus on. And so we now have this incredibly sophisticated off chain infrastructure. Um, with particularly like you know Mev searchers, but also I think uh, really sophisticated builders, where often uh, and, and relays you know, these these parties where they're um, they're doing all these complex computations, um, but they're often doing it in a way where uh, you know, it involves it involves points of centralization. Um, anyway, I think the Mev ecosystem overall is incredibly decentralized, like as a system, um, but there are points there where there's actually benefits to being centralized. And I think this is this is a potential risk, um, and it's one that Flashbots has been has been uh, concerned about for years. Um, and it's also one where if you're building applications in this Mev space, you potentially find yourself um, you have to you have to find trust trust somebody to run you know a a, 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 a searcher for a, a, a what is it called um a solver for for some protocol right like you know or or, or our matchmakers or something you know there's there's many different terms for this uh, or a relay someone who's who plays some semi trusted role in this off chain infrastructure where again once the stuff gets on chain like it's you know it's all non custodial and and the trades are settled or everything but there's this point before it where a lot of stuff ends up being uh you, you, the way that things are currently designed there are these potential points of centralization there and what I see Suave as is, is it's a platform for decentralizing all that off-chain MEV infrastructure. Um, I think for uh, decentralizing some of what of what builders do, but also, um, you know, if you if you like want to run a, a protocol right now for matching for doing like a batch auction off-chain right now, probably the best way to do that would be to would be you know have some semi-trusted party like or you, or you run it right like you run a server and I say I'm, I just promise I'm going to run a batch auction and um, and I won't look at your bids and I won't bid myself. Um, but if we wanted to do this in a trustless way, there's actually just no platform on which to build that, to build a, for example, like a decentralized batcher. And so um, what I'm most excited about Suave is I, I see it as, as a place where we can, you can build, I can just like write some um, code, right? Like maybe even just like some solidity and they will run it for me off chain really efficiently. Um, but in a way where I know that it's actually going to be executed, I can, I can depend on untrusted hardware or on consensus or, or on, some, on some decentralized um, guarantees that it's actually going to be run um, uh, in a private way. And I think that just as an application designer would be an inc incredibly powerful thing to rely on. It's, in my view, almost, almost as big as just moving from like Bitcoin to, um, to Ethereum, to moving toward Turing complete on-chain contracts. As imagine we had Turing complete off-chain contracts. Mm. Beautiful. Dan, this has been a fantastic exploration to a bunch of new knowledge. And I thank you for, uh, for coming back onto Bankless and, and spreading all of this cool stuff that you've been researching on over at Paradigm. 
Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me back. And just just before I, before I go, I remember I'm Paradigm. We're a crypto asset investment firm. Um, we do have investments in a lot of the uh, uh, projects that we mentioned today. Um, and generally, I'm here speaking on my own behalf, and nothing that I said here was uh, financial or legal advice. Of course. Thanks, Dan. I'll give our own disclaimers as well over at Bankless. Crypto is risky. Bankless Nation, you know the deal. You can lose what you put in. But we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we are glad you are with us on the Bankless journey. Thanks a lot. 